Isaiah much, but Isaiah is the mentor of Micah. Uh, they were at the same time. We know that because Micah preached one of Isaiah's sermons. And Isaiah was the one who had the vision, but Micah repeats it. It's okay to repeat somebody else's sermon, you know. It's not a problem. Um, the passage that we're going to look at, there's several passages in Micah I want to look at, but you can see the years that it was uh, Uzziah. Where is Uzziah here? Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I'll write that in. I believe you. I don't see it. That's his other name. Yeah. Okay, so if you look at uh, uh, Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. If you look at Micah, look at the first verse there. The word of Yahweh that came to Micah of Moresheth. Moresheth may be over near the Philistine area, near the city of Gath. And Hezekiah. So you got Micah's in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the last three of these. Maybe that's why he's got Uzziah up there. I finally saw it. So uh, this is a guy who is prophesying out to the farmers in Israel, in Judah. The southern kingdom. All the prophets we've talked about so far were up north in the northern kingdom. Maybe you know about that. The kingdom. <laughs> Excuse me, boy. I hope that didn't blow the speakers out. Boy, <laughs> it blew my nose out. Uh, about 960, the kingdom split. You got a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called the northern kingdom, also called Israel, also called Ephraim. It'd be a lot easier if they would call everything the same, but they don't do that. Uh, There's so many things like that. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And Judah includes Simeon and Benjamin. So there are actually three tribes here, and if you count the split tribe of Manasseh, you have ten tribes up north. Baker's dozen. Twelve, really, is thirteen. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This is because when Solomon died, his son was a fool. He said, who knows, I've amassed all this, if I'm going to leave it to a fool. And sure enough, he left it to his son, Rehoboam. And we talked about this yesterday briefly. So Rehoboam split the kingdom by increasing their taxes, and they refused to pay, and they went home and never paid. And so he set up, a, he took his army out to fight them and was driven off, and God said, don't do that. So that was the end of that. So the 
the ones that we've talked about so far, Joel, Amos, Hosea, and Jonah, were all four up in this part, preaching to Israel. Israel was destroyed 722 B.C. by Assyria. Assyria, north and west of the Persian Gulf, up the, uh, up the uh, Mesopotamian Valley. Judah is destroyed in 586 B.C. What did I say? B2? Um, by Babylon. They were, they, there was deportation that already took place twice. Uh, one in 605, one in 596, and then the last one is when Nebuchadnezzar was so ticked off that he came in and hooked up plows to oxen and plowed up the entire city, threw every brick in the city down in the deep declivity around the city, the deep uh, Kidron Valley. And so that when they came back 70 years later, this 70 years is predicted by both Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, that they would be away long enough. How many of you have parents that speak another language from you? Anybody? You do. What language? Oh, is it from Uganda? Is that? Oh, okay. Okay. Now, you do you speak it? How about your kids? A little bit. They understand it probably, but they don't speak it. And then the next generation after your kids won't speak it at all. It takes three generations to lose a language. That's what happened here. They went from Hebrew to Aramaic, the Babylonian language. It's called Aram, Babylon, and uh, Syria. And uh, Abraham himself is called a wandering Aramean. So he came from up in that area of Babylon. He came from Ur of the Chaldees. Oh, it's also called Chaldea. Okay, so now we're going from the northern kingdom, which was destroyed in 722, to the southern kingdom. There's kind of a gap in here uh, when there, there weren't prophets all the time. But almost always there were some to tell the people that they were sinning against God and that they would be judged if they didn't repent. Most of the prophets were killed. The Jews hated to be corrected. And uh, when the prophets spoke, you can read about it throughout the Scripture, they would be killed for telling the truth. Um I forget who it was that said, uh, the more a culture drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who tell it. You see that in our culture? We're drifting from the truth, and so when people say homosexual behavior is wrong, which the Bible teaches, our culture condemns us for doing that. 
ultimately our freedom of speech will be taken away. In fact, probably most of our freedoms will be taken away. We're losing them. I've seen them in my lifetime. I've seen a tremendous loss of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. All that. You, they'll, if you say something they don't like, they'll take you off. If you talk about guns or show a picture of a gun on Facebook, they'll take you off. Uh, they forgot about Second Amendment. You know, they forgot about the First Amendment. Let me just say this: if you don't have the Second Amendment, you can't have the First Amendment. If you don't have the right to keep and bear arms. You don't have the right to speak. And this we're going to find this out very soon. They're working to try to take all that away from us. Okay. <clears throat> Micah's main key verse is probably 718 toward the end of the book. Let's take a look at that. If you're with me in Micah, turn to 718. It's a great statement about God. Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Boy, I hate blowing my nose in public. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. There's a great description of God right there. He passes over transgression. You remember what he said when he saw the blood back in the 12th chapter of Exodus? When I see the blood, when they put the blood up over the doorpost, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. He loves to pass over transgression. He doesn't say, I'm going to look in the window and see if you're tithing and if you're doing what's right. If you're under the blood, you're protected. And we Christians come under the blood by faith and by baptism. I'm sorry? Oh, of course, yeah. Excellent things. I mean, look at, look at what God is like. He doesn't keep His anger forever. He delights in mercy. And He will again have compassion on us and subdue our iniquities. God will put our sins away. He's talking about the Jews. The Jews are in deep trouble when Micah writes. Micah has learned from Isaiah. Isaiah preached to the kings while Micah is preaching to the farmers. This is very much like Daniel and Ezekiel. When Daniel's preaching to the kings over here in Babylon... Ezekiel's preaching to the slaves. God called Ezekiel when he was 30 years old, just as he did John the Baptist and just as he did Jesus. So go back to Micah chapter 1. There's several things we need to see here. The first part of of the book, the whole first chapter, is an attack on idolatry. The people are worshiping idols. And then verse uh, chapter 2, he starts talking about people 
who plan and do evil. Look at the first verse of chapter 2. What are those who devise iniquity, who work out evil on their beds? At morning light, they practice it because it's in their power to do so. You know, here are people who, who are thinking all the time about evil. This is very much like before the flood, back in chapter 6 of Genesis. Uh, only evil all the time, God says back there. Well, these people are the same way. Preachers are called prattlers. You know what the word prattle means? It means just blah, 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 blah. And so preachers are called prattlers. They're also told, like in Amos, not to drip. Stop dripping here. You know, in other words, they're obnoxious, like a drip out of a faucet. The Jews have a saying that they don't want to live in a house with talk, knock, or bock. Talk means the sound of a faucet. Knock means uh, a wife constantly nagging. And uh, bock means bugs. And they say, we don't want to live in a house with talk, knock, or bock. So, um, nagging. They looked at prophets as naggers. You know, people who continually were nagging them to do what was right. Don't prop, don't prattle, don't drip. And finally, he says, "You who named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of Yahweh restricted?" Verse seven. Are these his doings? Don't my words do good to him who walks uprightly? You know, you bad people, you don't want to hear my words. But good people. Appreciate my words. It's kind of like Proverbs says. A wise man will study the Proverbs and become wiser. He will grow in wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Do you hear that? Remember, this is around 700 B.C. So the northern kingdom's already gone. But now he's telling the southern kingdom that they're going to be destroyed, that the, that the capital city, Jerusalem, will be plowed like a field. It's the only place that's mentioned in the Bible before it actually happens. Jeremiah predicts that Jerusalem will be destroyed, and they throw him in prison and chain him. And then they come in and say, we're going to take you out and stone you to death. And one of the, one of the, uh, leaders remembers that Micah had predicted that Jerusalem would be plowed up like a farmer's field. And so Jeremiah was not put to death. But he came close many times. At the end of his life, he was stoned to death down in Egypt, according to Jewish tradition. And I think that's probably accurate. So, 3.12, this is a prediction of the future. Because of you, because you're evil, because you, your judges take bribes, because uh, you're after the almighty dollar. Sound familiar? Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become heaps of ruins. And the mountain of the temple, the mountain of the house of God, 
will be like the bare hills of a forest. And sure enough, when they came back, they couldn't find the city. And they said, it's like a forest on a hill until they looked down the valley and found the ruins. Go over to chapter 4. Now, chapter 4, 1 through 3, is right out of Isaiah. Chapter 2, 1 through 4. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4 says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And then here's what he says in chapter 4. It'll come to pass in the latter days. Now, when are the latter days? Normally, it's the church age that he's talking about. In the Old Testament, when you say latter days, you know, we, we looked at Joel the other day. Remember Joel 2.28? It'll happen in the latter days that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Here's women preachers, see, right there. There's no teaching in Scripture that I can find against women being preachers and teachers. Women evangelists, I don't have any problem with that. Uh, a man can be won to Christ by his wife. And it happens all the time. But you can't get them in there by nagging. Okay? Peter says you can win your husbands over without a word by your good behavior. Without a word, ladies, remember that. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days in the church age that the mountain of Yahweh's house will be established on the top of the mountains and will be exalted above the hills. Have we talked about what the word mountain means in prophecy? Mountain means kingdom. God says, They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the, water, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So mountain means kingdom. Look at Daniel 2. When you look at Daniel 2, you'll discover that Daniel interprets the word mountain to mean kingdom. And he's talking about the kingdom of God. This is exactly what's being talked about here. All this is future to Micah. All of it's future to Isaiah. He's talking about the church age. 700 years in the future and more. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Yahweh's house, in other words, the Lord's kingdom, will be established at the more, most important place of all the kingdoms, greater than America, greater than anything else. And it will be exalted above the hills, meaning the other kingdoms. Peoples will flow to it. Now, in, in Isaiah, he says mighty nations will flow to it. He may say that here, too. Many nations will come, the Gentiles. And they'll come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. Isn't it amazing that we Gentiles have turned to Jacob's God? Did you know there's a place in Isaiah where God is called by the name Jacob? He says, those who seek your face, O Jacob. And Jacob had been dead 
over a thousand years. He's talking about the, the God of Jacob. So look at this. Nations, the Gentiles come. Is that going on right now? Are the Gentiles saying, let's go to the kingdom of the Lord? To the house of God? I mean, that's where we are. We're in God's house here. The house of God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways. And we shall walk in His paths. I believe he's talking here about Jesus, and we're going to see this even more plainly in the next section. For he says, For out of Zion, that's Jerusalem, that's another word, one of the pet words for Jerusalem. For out of Zion the law will go forth. It doesn't, it doesn't say that. It, there's no the in there. The word Torah is used here. Out of Zion, Torah. Torah means... Whatever God points out, it includes the law, but it's a lot more. God's teaching. And so what he's doing here is saying, He will teach us His ways. We will walk in His paths, for out of Zion will go forth a law, a teaching, coming from Jesus, from Jerusalem. And the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He, the word of Yahweh, He. Talking about Jesus. You see that? He will judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They will beat their swords into plowshares. Now, Micah says, beat your plowshares into swords. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, not Micah. Uh, Amos says, beat your plowshares into swords. Get ready for war. But here he's saying, beat your swords into plowshares, your spears into pruning hooks. Nation will never lift up the sword against nation again. They will never learn war anymore. I want you to look at these three verses. It'll happen in the latter day that the mountain, the kingdom of God, will be the most important of all the kingdoms. That was 700 years in the future for him. But we've seen it. It's in the past for us, isn't it? that God's kingdom became number one in the world. Church is growing faster today than any time in history, right along with persecution. 80,000 people an hour are becoming Christians in the world. That's why there's so many martyrs, so many Christians being killed. Two million a day becoming Christians. That was in uh, January of 2011. It's probably going faster than that now. There's a book that came out from Gordon Conwell University in Boston, their intercultural department, that did a history and led up to this century to show how fast the church is exploding with growth around the world. People are seeing dreams of Jesus and visions of Jesus. I have a video of a guy that met Jesus in a dream, saying, follow me, wearing white, in the middle of Turkey, he'd never met a Christian, never seen a Bible. And that dream made such an impact on him that he was converted to Christ and followed him for two years without ever meeting a Christian, without ever seeing a Bible. He had been beating his wife. He was a drunk. And when he met the Lord, all that changed. His family saw the change in him. And then one day he heard on the radio 
that he could order a Bible from a, from a radio station. He ordered the Bible. When he got it, he said he read it from cover to cover, first of Genesis through the 22nd of Revelation, without sleep, without food, reading, 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 reading. I don't know how long it took him. He didn't say. But at the end of it, he was totally converted. He talked to his wife. She was converted. He converted her, uh, her, their children and then began working on their relatives and other people in the area. He finally found some Christians he could work with. But this is an incredible thing. See, God is establishing his house. His house was established in Acts chapter 2 in the year 30 A.D., or 29 A.D. We're not sure which year it was. Jesus was born 5 B.C. Our calendars are all off. Then the second verse, Many nations will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. We Gentiles are all coming to Jesus. Uh, 40,000 Chinese every day becoming Christians. It's just, it's exploding. The church is exploding. India, where the church is outnumbered about 50 to 1 with Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists, and even the Hindus now and Buddhists are attacking Christians. I don't know if you knew this, but they are killing Christians. In one case, there were some Hindus. Hindus basically accept any religion. Any religion's okay. Any god is okay. When they hear about Jesus, they put Jesus in with all their other gods. But when they found out that Christians teach Jesus and is the only way, that's when they became angry. And so now they're shouting, India for the Hindus, and killing Christians. Now, there was one missionary and his son who were caught in a car by a bunch of militant Hindus. They started the car on fire and wouldn't let them out. And they burned them to death in the car. And it was on the news. And the, the wife of the missionary was there. And the guy stuck the mic, the newsman stuck the mic in her mouth and said, uh, what would you like to tell those guys that killed your hu husband and son? She said, I'd like to tell them that I forgive them. And it just, you know, just hit like a bomb. And this guy said, if that's what Christianity is like, I need to be a Christian. And they called her the mother of forgiveness. This is happening all over the world. Christians are winning people to Christ. Christians are not pacifists, you know, we're not pacifists. But if we're under persecution, we turn the other cheek. If you're interested, I've got an article written about that phrase, turn the other cheek. Uh, if somebody comes into my house and wants to kill my wife or my family, I won't turn the other cheek. I'll shoot them. I mean, whatever it takes. Deadly force. I don't like that idea. I don't ever want to hurt somebody. But if I have to, I will. Because we're never told to let our family be killed by some guy that comes in. Now, if, he, if he's attacking me for being a Christian then I have to turn the other cheek. That's a whole different thing. There are three times you never turn the other cheek. When a child slaps a parent, 
Well, you might turn the other cheek, but it, you know, be the child's. Uh, you don't turn the other cheek when a student slaps a teacher. And you don't turn the other cheek when a criminal slaps a cop. See, there are order, there's an order in society. And it has to be followed. But when you are persecuted, when somebody tells you, take my pack, like the Roman soldiers could do, take my 40-pound pack and carry it a mile, Jesus said, go two miles. Talk to them about me, you know. You'd make an impression on a guy. Most of the Jews had put down rocks to mark the mile from their house, so that's all they had to go. But Jesus' people didn't do that. They walked along with the guy, happy to do it. Talked to him about what kind of impact do you think that would have? See, that's under persecution. That's in the context of turning the other cheek. If a bad person, evil person who is a persecutor, slaps you, you got to take it. That'd be hard, but you got to take it. Uh, so, many nations will come here. The nations are flowing to Jesus. This is going on right now. So, verse 1's in the past. Verse 2's in the present. Where's verse 3? Past, present, and the judgment. They will beat their swords into plowshares. No more war. No more fighting. There's a lot more detail here in this passage, but I want you to see that this whole thing was future to Isaiah. To us, it's past, present, and there's no reason to doubt. Verse 3. That'll happen in the future. So much good stuff here. That's the same as Isaiah 2. And then verse 5 says, For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. You see that capital L-O-R-D there? If it's capitalized, it's the name Yahweh can be either Lord or God, capitalized all the way through. I'll show you a place in a little bit where it's God, capitalized all the way through. Now, turn to chapter 5. This is one of the more amazing passages of Scripture. Micah is the only guy who tells the world where the Messiah will be born. Did you notice that? Look at Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah. Ephrathah means fruitful. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are little among the thousands of Judah. Yet out of you will come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from the days of eternity. From everlasting. See, isn't that an amazing statement? That the king who comes out of Bethlehem, his origins will be in eternity, way in the past, everlasting. How did he know this? 
that Jesus would be born, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the King who came from eternity. How do you know that? Oh, I better not take this off or I'll tear this thing to pieces. I get so many calls. Getting a little warm up here. Okay, let me talk to you about this a little bit. Verse 2. You, Bethlehem. There were two Bethlehems, one up north and one down south. The one down south is uh, called Ephrathah because it was fruitful. It had uh, all kinds of grain, and they kept the the uh, lambs in Bethlehem for sacrifice in Jerusalem two miles away. And so here's the Lamb, you know, the Lamb of God coming into the world, the one who's also the Good Shepherd. He is before and after. He is Alpha and Omega. Even though Bethlehem is a small place, Bethlehem was... Uh, almost a no, no, non-existent town. It was a dirty, it's still a dirty little place. It's outside of Jerusalem, about two miles. Today you can go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, can't tell the difference. It looks the same. But back then it was a little farther out in the country. And it says, Out of you will come forth for me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose, whose beginnings are from eternity from everlasting days. In the New Testament, the scholars knew this verse. They knew that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, that he would be born there. Remember that in Matthew, the first part, where the the wise men come? How did they know? Probably from Daniel's teaching in Babylon and from Balaam. Balaam's prophecy that in the fourth oracle that a star will rise out of Jacob. I've probably talked to you about this before, but the Chinese archives have records that go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And the star of Bethlehem was a comet that went across the sky, and the farther it went, the more its tail pointed up until it was like a finger pointing down at Bethlehem. The Chinese saw it and followed it for 70 days. And then here come the wise men from Persia in between, and they see it and they follow it, and they come in. And by the time they get there, Jesus and his family have moved into a a house. They're not in the stable anymore. But they're living in a house that kind of messes up our uh, nativity scenes. Yeah, you know what a you know what a judicial nativity scene is. A bunch of lawyers kneeling around an uh, accident victim. But anyway, uh, here's here are these wise men coming. Maybe five or six months later, Jesus by that time uh, was older than a baby. 
and uh, came to the house where they were. We could read that in Matthew. Uh, only Matthew mentions the, the wise men. These guys were called magi. Magi is the actual pronunciation. They were not magicians, but they were stargazers and scholars. They were called, quote, soothsayer priests. They gave advice like Daniel did to the kings in Babylon. And so these guys come from the area around Babylon, Persia, what we call today Iran and Iraq. There are 12 towns in Persia that claim that the wise men came from there. But let me ask you a question. How did Jesus happen to be born in Bethlehem? How did that happen? They didn't they didn't live there. Hmm? Well, why did they why were Yeah, Joseph and Mary had to come down there because the emperor of Rome had moved the whole world to get them taxed. Everybody had to go back home. I would have to go back to Murfreesboro, Illinois. You ever heard of that? <laughs> You'd go, what? <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, never mind. But anyway, all these people had to go back to their original birthplace. And so, since both Mary and Joseph were offspring of uh, David, David's home was Bethlehem. So they had to go all the way back to Bethlehem. And she was so pregnant that when she got there, they couldn't find a room anywhere, and they moved into one of these... Uh, what the Jews call Sukkot, uh, um, the uh, the tents or the the shelters that were built uh, for this. This took place right after the Feast of the Harvest, when people camped out, the families camped out to thank God for caring for them and coming in and having their harvest, and they would have a great feast that went on for several days. And uh, many of those little tents and shacks were left up, and Jesus was probably born in one of those. Yeah, the Feast of Tabernacles, it's called. Um, sometimes I forget what the, the English term is, but Sukkot means tents or tabernacles where they built these little shelters where they would live in it. And they may, there may have been some left over. Jesus was actually born late in September or early, early October. And if you want to know how I know that, we can talk about that another time. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But he, uh, only, only this prophet, only Micah tells us that he's going to be born there. And the amazing thing is he predicts that this king will be one who comes from eternity. How could he possibly know that unless God revealed it to him? And so he goes on. Listen to what he says. Verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brothers will return to the children of Israel. Again, he's talking about the Gentiles coming in. 
In John's Gospel, Jesus says, I have many other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. He's talking about the Gentiles, you know, not just the Jews. And he will stand and feed his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He will be their peace. If you've read the book of Ephesians, you know it says, He is our peace. So that's essentially what Jesus is going to be like, described right there in the fifth chapter of Micah. That's an amazing passage of Scripture, a miraculous passage, quoted in the first chapter of Matthew. One more. One more place to look here in uh, Micah. Micah chapter 6. I think this is my favorite verse and passage in Micah. Micah asks a question, With what shall I come before Yahweh and bow myself before the highest God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? See, he's asking a question. How can I come before God? How can I appear in before God? Is he going to be pleased with thousands of rams sacrificed? Or 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? You know, like Abraham almost did. Shall I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How can we come before God? Listen to what he says. He has shown you, O man, what is good. O man means he's not talking just to Israel. This is for everybody. The word Adam here refers to all of us. He has shown us what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you? Three things. Once you see this, what does do justice mean? Not having unbalanced weight. Hmm? Not having unbalanced weight. Uh, no. <laughs> it's true about unbalanced weight. In other words, be honest. Do justice means to treat people. Right. Treat people with love and respect. That's what God expects of us. To be good to one another. To be kind to one another. And then he says the second thing is to love mercy. But that is not a good translation. The Hebrew word that's used here uh, literally means covenant loyalty. In other words, if you have a covenant with God, what's our covenant with God? Jesus. Jesus' blood. He says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Our covenant with God is forgiveness 
and it's written in our hearts. And so what he's saying here is, treat people right, treat God right. In other words, covenant. Covenant means agreement, relationship that we have with God. It's personal. Personal relationship. with God. So, this is the law, folks. This is the law and the prophets. Treat people right and keep your relationship with God right. And then look what the third thing is. I love this. Matthew 11:28 through 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, Jesus says, because I am meek and lowly, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your souls. There you go. So, walk humbly. with God. Walk humbly with your God. That's all He cares about. That's all God wants. That's for the whole human race. That's why He says, O Adam, O man, treat people right. Love one another no matter what. Our differences make us wonderful, make us beautiful. If you studied Genesis with me, you know that God made humans out of the dirt. He made Adam out of the dirt. And dirt has five colors. Black, white, red, yellow, and brown. People are black, white, red, yellow, and brown. We are all the same. We are all people. And we treat each other right. There's a a unity in the human race. And then treating God right by this covenant relationship where we're personally committed to Him. We're attached to Him. And He loves us and we love Him. And we prove it by walking humbly with Him. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. You know what a yoke is, right? We don't use that word anymore. I'm not talking about an egg yoke. That's with an L. This is Y-O-K-E. Yoke. A yoke has a place for two oxen. When he says, take my yoke upon you, Christ is here, and you and I are here, walking with him, side by side. This is all God ever wanted. All he ever wanted was for us to be his friends. I'm blown away by that. That the God who created the universe wants to be my friend. Wants to walk with me. Wants me to walk with Him. Remember what it says about walking with God? Remember the first guy that walked with God? Enoch. Chanok is his name in Hebrew. It means dedicated. He walked with God. And he was taken. God didn't even make him die. He lived 365 years and then was gone. The next person that's talked about as walking with God is Noah. 
he didn't have it easy. He didn't, God didn't say, okay, I'll take him too. He said, I'm going to have you make this gigantic box. Three stories. An ark. Uh, with uh, oh, 560 plus boxcar loads of, of space in it. Can you believe that? Massive thing. Big as a building. And he worked on it with his sons for a hundred years. And then Melchizedek died. Melchizedek means his death will bring it. And Melchizedek's death brought the flood. God warned Noah and his family ahead of time seven days. He said, go in, shut the door, and I will cover you. Isn't that interesting? That word cover is the word kipper. You've heard of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? God says, I will cover you with pitch. I will atone for you. I will cover you. I'll protect you. I wish they'd quit this. I'm going to take this thing out and turn it off. Usually I just put it on the same guy that calls me all the time. Okay. Um, I hope that got through to you. Yes. That's a tough question. When you start talking about humility, uh, it kind of disappears. You know, if I say I'm humble, everybody thinks, man, this guy's weird. But Jesus, Jesus said he was humble. And he only told the truth. See, this gives us the nature of God. If, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. And I am humble and lowly, he says. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You know, it's so much better to be a Christian and walk with Jesus than to try to make it on your own. I don't know how people make it on their own. I don't know how you deal with death in the family when you're not a believer. But humility means that I trust myself completely to Him. Humility, you know, this is what Jesus admired in little children. Remember when they said, they tried to bring the kids and the disciples said, get out, get those kids out of here. Jesus said, no, let the children come to me because the kingdom of heaven is like that. And he took one time the, the guys were arguing about who was the greatest. The disciples were arguing. He takes a little child and puts them in the midst. You imagine this little child looking up at these big bearded dudes and uh, just trusting and humble. And these guys argued about who was the greatest clear up to the last night when Jesus went into the upper room with them and washed their feet. They were arguing on the way up which of them was the greatest. Jesus said, it will not be so among you, but you, the least will be the greatest. The slave of all will be the greatest. Serving people and having a personal relationship with God, that's what humility is. Little children have that. Little children are born with God in them. They're born with humility. Little children don't know sin. 
they're born with sin in them, just like everybody else. You know, I mean, we all get Adam's sin. We're born with it. I call that the fact of sin. The fact is inside everybody. Everybody who's ever been born has Adam's sin born into him, except for Jesus, the only person that didn't have the seed of man in him. Remember the promise, the first promise, Genesis 3.15, the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. So Satan will be crushed even though sin is in man. The thing we're responsible for is the act of sin. And when kids get to an age where they choose to rebel, where they choose to sin, that's when they become liable. And that's why we, we need Jesus so much because, the, uh, you know, I've been around for quite a few years, and I still have this in me. And sometimes I still struggle with this. Look at First John. 1, 8, and 10. If we say we have no sin, we're a liar, and God's and Christ's Word has no place in our lives. If we say we have not sinned the act, then we make God out to be a liar, which is even worse. So we have both sin and sinned. Does that make sense? Paul says sin... The fact of sin. Sin dwells in my flesh. Romans 7. But we're responsible for the act we do. And the great thing about being a Christian is, even though we're responsible, we're not liable anymore. We're like little children who disobey their parents. You know, I remember when my daughter and son both disobeyed. I read the book, The Strong-Willed Child, with my son. Uh, Dobson. Yeah, there you go. I see you pointing over to Sarah. <laughs> so, who, me? <laughs> okay. For your own daughter. Oh. Well, humble means that you're teachable. Humble means that you want to have a relationship with Jesus. You want to learn. You want to submit. That's a toughie. But the Holy Spirit makes people hum humble. The Word of God makes people humble. And the only way I know to really be humble is to walk with Jesus. Little children have it by nature. I love little kids. They're just so precious and special. And Jesus saw that. He saw how beautiful they were on the inside. And he made it clear that little children are safe. You know, they may not be saved in the biblical sense, but they're safe. Because he says you've got to be like that to enter the kingdom. When a child dies, he goes straight to heaven. If you don't believe me, read the book. It's a book that will blow your mind. It's called Spirit of the Rainforest. And... Uh, it's a fascinating story of witch doctors in South America. Each of them had demons, even though the witch doctors had never met each other. 
they knew each other because of the demons reporting about them. And when they met each other, they say, oh, it's you, I know you, you know. But uh, if you want to see an incredible book, the guy that wrote the book was not a Christian until he got about two-thirds of the way through the book. I've read two books where somebody becomes a Christian writing the book. That's one, Spirit of the Rainforest. The other one is People of the Lie. People of the Lie will, Scott Peck is the author. People of the Lie shook my world. It, along with disappointment with God, changed my life. Made me rethink everything. Oh, my goodness. We're, we're at 8 o'clock. Let me see if you have any questions on Micah. Or any questions at all. can't believe I took an hour on Micah, even though it's worth many hours. I have. Uh, I was ready to go into uh, Ze- um, Zephaniah next, so we'll start that tomorrow night. Yeah, listen, folks. Um, we have several prophets to go through. I will finish the pre-exilic prophets. Pre-exilic means. Before the exile, Jerusalem was destroyed in that year, and the people went away to Babylon for 70 years. And so I will go through the prophets, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and uh, what's there's one other one, um, Obadiah, which is uh, one chapter. I'll go through those. Nahum. So there's four. Nahum's in there. Okay. Nahum and Obadiah are one chapter each. Zephaniah, when the Reader's Digest did the condensed Bible, they left out Zephaniah altogether because Zephaniah is very much repeated in several of the other prophets. And I would never leave it out, but they did. And then... uh, Let's see, which other one? Habakkuk. Habakkuk, havkuk in Hebrew, means uh, to hug. So let's pray, and I'll let you go. Our time's up. Father, you're so good to us. We thank you. We thank you that you love mercy, that you keep your covenant with us, that the blood of Jesus always, eternally, washes away all our sins. And Father, we call on your name. We call on the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that your Holy Spirit will convict us of the Word and help us to read it and study it and think about it and to become like your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.